This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, good morning. I'm Frank Proctor, the sous chef of the garden, checking in from my place about 10 minutes from downtown Newmarket. And from her place in Prince Edward County, here's our master gardener, Charlie Stillner Jammies Dobbin. <laughs> Thanks for that, Frank. <laughs> what happened to Countess of the County? Oh, oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Good heavens. I'm so sorry, Your Majesty. Yes, and how is the <laughs> Countess this morning? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's uh, not as gorgeous of a day today as it was uh, earlier in the week, but um, the weekend does seem to be coming up pretty gorgeous. The weather is warming up. The sun is starting to stay out a little longer, and we're starting to see some action in the plants in my neighborhood. So yeah. uh, things are feeling very spring-like. Well, that's good. Now, speaking of uh, working hard at things, you also uh, teach school. Uh, and are you doing that online? Yeah, we went 100% virtual as of the middle of March. Uh, I teach at Durham College oh. in the Horticulture Technician Program. And yeah, I mean, it, it's not impossible to teach virtually. And I, I'm sure a lot of parents out there are going to have a lot of, to say about their feelings on virtual school. Uh, but I'll tell you, it was very, very tough for the students. We went, you know, from sort of zero to 100 kilometers an hour online. And of course, what I teach is very practical. I mean, we have labs where we're very hands-on. I've been having my students test my soil from my new home and, and we get, you know, we get down and dirty into a lot of very, uh, practical horticultural techniques. And you can't do that online. So we did get through this semester and it is all over. Thank goodness. Um, you know, congratulations to the students for getting through. Uh, I don't know what will happen next fall, though. If we're still if we're not back at school, we may not be back at school. Well, I'll tell you, uh, my son, my young, youngest son, Toby, has been through a real experience. Uh, George Brown College uh, hired him to teach a course on acting in front of the green screen. You know, uh -huh. the, and, and so here he, he was uh, had it all set up to have about 20 students uh, in a classroom and everything, of course, went online. And here he is a poor guy. The first time out, he's in front of a green screen all by himself. And he had to <laughs> two and a half hours. He had to oh. ad lib and, and make well, he, he prepared. But it was yeah. just, a, 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 I guess, a real trial. But anyway, that's uh -huh. all over. So a lot of people are uh, are, uh, you know, in in straits like that. Uh, oh, we better mention, of course, there are no phone calls to the show this morning. Uh, mm -hmm. We're we're recording this show uh, last Tuesday for broadcast today, so we would, of course, uh, like you to send us an email, and we'll get you that email address in just a couple of moments. Uh, Charlie, you remember uh, our discussion last week about the province possibly opening up garden centers? Yeah, did you learn anything about that? Well, the Premier said last Friday that he expected to have some good news in that regard very soon. I know he had some major announcements yesterday, but I couldn't find any specific reference to that point. 
So when you and I chatted yesterday, you said you're going to call around to some garden centers in your area just to see if they really are open. Uh, what did you learn? Well, I chatted with the folks at two garden centers in the Newmarket area, Noel Metcalf at Yield of Dreams Garden Center on <laughs> Stephen Court. They're open, but on limited hours, and they're only allowing two customers into the store at a time. Mm. And when I spoke to Sherry at New Roots Garden Center on Young Street in Newmarket, basically the same story there. Yeah, it's so confusing. You know, if somebody, well, I'm somebody, all of us need to buy stuff, right? It's spring. We, we need our flowers. We need our, our little starter plants. Uh, we probably need potting soil. We might even need fertilizer. So call ahead. Don't assume that your favorite garden center is open until, unless you call ahead. Uh, some of them are just doing orders online or over the phone and then a curbside pickup. Others are allowing people into the garden center like you found out. But when you're only letting in two people at a time and it's spring, imagine how long those lineups are going to end up. Yep, exactly. Mm. The good news mm. is, though, you are concerned about community gardens. Yeah, because I find there's certain confusion around a garden center and a community garden. And then there's another whole category called allotment gardens. So the community gardens or the allotment gardens are the ones that are typically either started by the community or started by a municipality in a space that's not being used. It's not developed. It's usually just a, a wasteland. It might even be a, you know, dumping ground for a bunch of old cars or something. So the community or the municipality comes together, they clean it all up and they set it up into little plots and people register for plots or go on a waiting list. There's thousands of people on waiting lists in Toronto for allotment gardens. Uh, but the good news is that, thank goodness, uh, Premier Ford did announce that he is allowing the gardens, the garden, community gardens and allotment gardens to open uh, at the end of this month. So that is great news. There's just a lot of organization by the folks who are involved in these in these gardens to set up, you know, obviously the correct distancing. They'll probably have time zones where different groups go in at different times, making sure they've always got that proper spacing between themselves because they do tend to be jammed in, you know, cheek by jowl if everybody's in the garden at the same time. You so got it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take some, some organizing, but I'll tell you, people are thrilled to bits because People who grow, I mean, it's a, it's a food source, right? These community gardens, people grow their own vegetables. And there's all those extra benefits from being outside in nature, nurturing and creating uh, in your gardens. And, and of course, you know, Frank, that gardening is one of the best cures for anxiety and depression. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I guess we better remind folks that we are recording this program on Tuesday morning for broadcast today. So our main tech guy, Joel, is with us once again. Not only Joel, his eight-year-old daughter, Emmy, will once again be a guest in our next segment. And since a lot of kids are homeschool being homeschooled these days, rather than have her just ask a question, I posed a question for her to answer. And the question is, what plants are used to produce clothing? Oh, good one. Okay. We're approaching our first break here. A reminder that we still need your questions for next week's show. So please send your garden question to Charlie Dobbin. Here's her email address, c.dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. We're really happy that everybody's with us, back with us this morning. Frank and I will be back in just a few moments. Yep, you're tuned to The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio AM 740 and 96.7 in downtown Toronto. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. 
This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, welcome back here to The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio AM 740. And my boss is online uh, from Prince Edward County, Charlie Dobbin. <laughs> hey, Charlie, how's it going? Frank, it's going great. Hey, we've got a, our special guest is back again this week. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Emmy. <laughs> Are you there? <laughs> So you're in downtown Toronto with your dad, Joel. And last week you asked us a question about why do plants need sunlight? And we talked about that a bit. And then after we finished the show, I thought, oh, I should have asked Emmy to do some homework. So I mentioned it to Frank and uh, Frank sent the, the question off to your dad. And of course, the question is, Emmy, what plants are used to produce clothing? Well, you've got bamboo, and you've also got cotton, and you've also got grass. Oh, grass. Wow. That's a cool one. Like a grass skirt. Like Hawaiian grass skirts. That's a good one. I like that. Any others? I don't know. Uh, uh-huh. there, <laughs> I don't do you think know. there's a spandex plant out there? No. <laughs> okay, good, good. Polyester plant? No. <laughs> No. Oh, that's good, though. But cotton is absolutely correct. Bamboo is absolutely correct. One of the ones I always think about is linen. Linen is a fabric that is woven from a plant called flax. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole bunch of very cool different ways that plants support us. Emmy, did you go on the computer to uh, learn that? I learned it from my mom and dad. Well, there you are. Homeschooling at its best. Excellent. That's wonderful. Do you have any other garden questions for us this week, Emmy? Um, well, I have one. All right. Other than, other than bees and hummingbirds, what other animals pollinate flowers? Oh, that's a great question. Wow. So we know bees. And did you see bees and butterflies? No, bees and hummingbirds. Oh, bees and hummingbirds. Okay, so bees, of course, are flying insects. So think about the fact that any flying insect that's flying around in the air, visiting the flowers, is probably pollinating along the way. They usually go to the flowers for the nectar because there's little tiny, tiny, minuscule bits of liquid inside the plants. So they're licking out the the nectar, which is what hummingbirds are doing as well, right? They're going for the nectar. But along the way, they transfer pollen from plant to plant. So yes, many, many birds, many, many flying insects. Uh, there's crawling insects like beetles. Uh, some of those beetles that some people think are scary and they want to step on them and kill them, they shouldn't because beetles actually do quite a bit of pollinating as well. They climb around from plant to plant. And one we don't often think about are bats. Bats that fly around in the middle of the night catching insects, also many of them are great pollinators. So we do love our bats as well. Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong, but a human can be a pollinator too, can, can they not? Sure, just, you know, by virtue of just brushing by a plant, you mean? Can I tell you one fun fact about bees? Yeah, sure. The way they pollinate is when they come to one flower, they get a whole bunch of stuff on them. And when they go to the next flower, it it drops off on it, and that's how they pollinate Exactly. And what's that stuff that they get on them? It's pollen. Hmm. Yeah, there you go. Exactly, exactly. 
that's the, so that stuff just, it's kind of a coincidence that the pollen drops onto their little furry bodies and then they go to the next flower and transfer some of that pollen from the fur on their little bodies onto the next flower. So super important. You know how many fruits and vegetables are pollinated by insects? No. Like just about all of them. Apples, peaches, pears, cherries, Oh, squashes. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on and on how many insects we rely on, bees being a real well-known one, for us to get fruit at the end of the season. I know a lot of bugs because I have a word search in one of my books and it's going to take me forever to finish because it's on bugs. Oh, nice. I love bugs. The technical word for people that work with bugs, do you know what they're called? No. All right. That's your homework for next week. What... What's what's the name of a person who works with bugs? Joel in the background is going, oh, I got some work to do again for next week. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Sammy. You're welcome. And thank you for letting me be on the garden show. You're welcome, honey. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, we have a number of questions, of course, sent in from emails. I've got one in front of me here, actually, that would, came from last week. The second part of a question from Aldina. And she, the question is, can clematis be propagated? And so what's the answer there? Well, and then she also says, I have tried with cuttings in the spring with no success. And I just want to say to Aldina, good for you for trying. Uh, um, clematis are famous for being quite difficult to propagate from cuttings, particularly. So we don't, uh, as hobby gardeners, we are rarely successful. That's a real uh, experienced gardener and a professional nursery person who is able to reproduce clematis from cuttings. You need all kinds of proper technical equipment to make it happen. But you know what's an easy way for anybody who's interested in expanding their clematis collection using clematis they already own? Keeping in mind, I'm not saying that right. It's actually called clematis. However, um, it's called um, a layering. So, okay, imagine a plant that's growing up out of the ground with these vines, these soft vine uh, shoots up out of the ground. So what you do is, of course, normally we, we grow our clematis up an arbor or a fence or a trellis, something, because in the, it'll curl on and hold on and climb straight up, and we love that. So what you do is you separate out one of those little tendrils and don't let it go up with the rest. Bend that tendril down to the ground, lay it down on the ground, and use um, bend a couple of bobby pins or a paper clip, bend it into like a U-shape, and then you you pin the vine down onto the soil surface just gently without breaking the stem and lay it down on the soil surface. And what will happen is roots will start to grow from beneath the leaves where it's lying on the ground. And you leave it like that for, it might be a couple of weeks. Uh, and at some point, you, you know, you can test, just tug gently. At some point, roots will have grown. So now you'll have a a plant that's growing separately from your mother plant, if you will. And then you just go in there with a sharp shovel or a trowel and you sever not only the vine, but you dig up that little bit of a root ball that you've got started now because those roots are down into the soil and you lift that up out of the ground and move it to a new location in your garden. So that's my suggestion, Aldina, is try layering your clematis. Okay. Uh, I have a question here from Maureen Boyce. Said, so glad you answered a question about seeds, especially glad to know I should not plant all the flower seeds I have happily obtained. But how should I store those not planted? 
There you go. Mm, yeah, that's a good question too, because we rarely use all our seeds in a package. So the, the trick with storing seeds is keep them dry, preferably in the dark. And most people keep them in just a paper envelope. Uh, and then they'll you put that paper envelope maybe into a jar. But either way, it's a, you do want a certain amount of air circulation. Keep in mind seeds are alive. Uh, so you don't want to, um, seal them up too tight into a, a, you know, a plastic bag or something like that. They do need a bit of air circulation. Dark helps. Cool temperatures help. Certainly dry is imperative in order to keep them completely dormant, waiting until you, you know, you have the, the time and, and ability to keep growing them. Might, might save them until next seed, next season. But remember to not all seeds store as well as others. So sometimes we have some seeds left over. And we think we're storing them and they're going to be great for next year, but actually they aren't because they aren't going to last till next year. Other seeds will. So you kind of figure that out as you go, or you can check that on the web or in any good seed book. Okay. Thank you very much, Charlie. And uh, we're going to be taking our next little break here. Uh, A reminder, you are indeed tuned to AM 740 Zuma Radio. And that, of course, in uh, downtown Toronto comes in at 96.7 FM, crystal clear. And we shall return with more of your emails since this show is recorded. Unfortunately, we're not taking any phone calls. Can't wait for the time, Charlie, that we can, huh? Oh, no kidding. I'm missing (laughs) the studio and I'm missing you, Frank. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. Anyway, back in a moment here on Zoomer Radio. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Exclusively on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. I'm Frank Proctor, the sous chef of the garden. And on her phone, all the way from Prince Edward County, is the master gardener herself, Charlie Dobbin. Charlie, here's a question sent in from Mark Schumach, uh, subject dahlias and daylilies. He says, hi, Charlie. In my sunny front yard, I have a couple of garden beds, about one meter by one meter, that have become full of daylilies. Now, I grow dahlias every year. I don't know the variety, but they grow very tall each year, more than a meter high. My question is this. Could I dig a hole in the middle of the daylily plots and put a dahlia in? Would the two plants interfere with each other, or could they coexist? Anything special I should do in regard to preparation? For example, put a bottomless plastic liner in the hole to keep the roots uh, apart from each other. That's from Mark in Etobicoke. Hmm. Very good question. Um, okay, so here's here's my thinking on this. Daylilies are, I always think of them as brutes. Like they they take over. You, you, you give them an inch and they'll take a mile every time. So dahlias are, are tough, or sorry, daylilies, I should be saying throughout this. So the daylilies are, you know, they're tough, they're hardy, they, they'll, you know, happily grow with zero maintenance in your garden. And remember, the flowers last for one day. Versus dahlias, which are a tropical bulb, so they are frost sensitive. We don't leave them in our gardens over the winter. We have to take them out. So I think that's probably Mark's biggest challenge in all of this is how can he plant it? Because there's no question they can grow side by each. There's no issues with, um, you know, unhappiness or interference, except that the daylilies got there first. So the daylilies are going to be, um, hogging the moisture and the nutrients from the dahlia that you're going to plant in this spring. 
So that's where you're going to have to put some very special emphasis on making sure the dahlia gets en- enough moisture and enough nutrient. And I'm sure you stake those dahlias because they're so tall. Um, now, be, normally you wouldn't say, well, let's ha- let's keep those roots separate because normally we would just let our plants grow together in the garden. But because Mark is going to want to dig up the dahlia at the end of the summer to take it in, to overwinter it inside his house, he, he has to do something to ensure that he can separate that dahlia from those daylilies next August, September. So you know what I would do, uh, Mark? I would put the dahlia into a good-sized pot. Of course, make sure the pot has lots, you know, has drainage holes. Uh, you suggest a bottomless plastic liner. Um, yeah, you could do that as well. But yes, I would plant the dahlia into some kind of a cylinder of its own so that it's easier to heave it up out of the ground at the end of the season. Um, but there should be no reason in the world why they can't grow together and, and yeah, be very pretty. The tall dahlia up over top of the daylilies. And when the dahlias aren't blooming, they're still nice, you know, green, um, sort of grassy looking leaves, but they, you know, they fill in our gardens very nicely and they're very easy to have in in the garden. So good idea. Let us know how that goes. Yep, absolutely. Okay, this, uh, honestly, this made me laugh out loud. This next uh, email from uh, Jay Douglas says... Um, it's uh, actually at the bottom. It's signed from Miss Joe. Oh, okay. Jay Douglas is Miss Joe, yeah. Alrighty. Says, hi, Charlie and Frank. I hired a lawn service last year. They did everything but run me a bubble bath. My lawn looked like hell. Aerated, fertilizers, seeded, nematodes, fiesta, herbicide. So they sprayed fiesta under the deck, got ants, called a company to spray. The backyard fence faces south. I watered it as required. My water bill is a testament to that. Now, the side where the grubs were all is patchy again. The lawn is half yellow, dead grass, not greening up. Cheese, even the park looks better for a heck of a lot less money, too. Help, please, Charlie. What steps do I take to correct the lawn from hell? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Thanks, Miss Joe. That's I can really visualize what's going on there. But but keep in mind that most lawns do look pretty rough in the spring. Um, you know, there there's certain kind of I, I, the things they did were like aerating a lawn is always a good idea, assuming that it was a moist lawn, uh, not bone dry. Fertilizing, depending on when you're fertilizing, is typically a good idea with lawns because what, like, think what is a lawn really? A lawn is millions of little tiny plants all growing really close together. And when you've got that many plants growing all together so close like that, it can be quite stressful on those plants. They, you know, they're sharing the same nutrients and the same moisture and they're getting walked on and, and mowed and, and snow sits on top of them all winter. So we do tend to, kind of look after our lawns pretty gently in the spring to bring them back to life. And one of the things we do, and I wouldn't do this gently, is you get out a fan rake, like a flexible fan rake, and rake like crazy. Rake out all the dead stuff. Doesn't matter how much you end up taking out, just take it all out. The yellow, the brown, the golden, anything that comes out, rake it out. Now, if you have some patches in your lawn after doing that, which most of us will, that's when you'll get yourself a little bit of a lawn top dressing. So that's a bit of a, a soil, a soilless mix. It's a peat-based product. It's designed to be sprinkled onto the surface of your lawn. Uh, it's just sprinkled. You know, you don't need to put out shovelfuls necessarily. And then again, you're going to sprinkle grass seed, a blend of grass seed on top of that uh, lawn top dressing. So we're going to top dress and overseed 
our thin areas, our, our empty patches where we want grass to grow. Another very light raking of it all because you want to bury, just, just barely bury the grass seeds. If you leave them exposed, the birds will often take them. And if you bury them too deep, they will not grow. So it's a very gentle fan rake after you've put the seed and the soil down. And again, you want to make sure you've got what we call good seed soil contact. So you don't want the seeds sitting up, up on the blades of grass that are alive. You want everything down at soil level. Get out your hose, stand there and moisten the whole thing down. And that's the best thing you can do is get those patches filled in this spring so that you don't have weeds taking advantage of that bare space. That's what weeds do. That's why we call them weeds. They're plants that move in to the areas where it's, it's available for them to just float in by seed or by sometimes perennials will come up. So um, I'm not sure, jo, Miss Joe doesn't say when it was fertilized. A fall fertilizing of our lawns is super important. So hopefully her lawn did get a fall fertilizer. If it didn't, then I would consider a spring fertilizer. If you've got, uh, you're worried about nematodes, or sorry, worried about grubs being in your lawn again or still, then you're going to put on your calendar in early August to get a hold of some nematodes from your local garden center, and you're going to follow all the instructions to, to uh, apply the nematodes to the lawn in early August in order to control grubs next year. Um, other than that, yeah, I mean, it's really, I, I know it's, it's lawn care services can cost a lot of money and they're, sometimes I find they're, it, it seems like you're spending a lot of money and it doesn't feel like you're getting a lot for it. Depends on your size of your lawn though. If you have a really big lawn, it's a lot of work. And if you have a nice small lawn, it's great. It's, I, I've enjoyed so many bottles of wine down at ground level, grass level, you know, pulling weeds and, and, you know, or, you know, seeding and soiling and watering and all that important stuff. So, um, lawns can be pretty, pretty fun, I think. And, you know, even mowing can be, can, has its joys. Okay. Um, uh, have a note here from Polly Hutchinson who says, love your show. Uh, we grow kale every year in the old blue recycle bin and reap a good harvest. Now, the container is covered with a tarpaulin over the winter. We took the cover off last week. Lo and behold, new kale leaves are sprouting in the old stalks. Very tender and tasty. Now, is this normal? Would you consider kale a perennial in our area? Polly Hutchinson. That's a, that's a great question. The um, kale, no. Kale is not a perennial in our area. However... What that tells you is what kind of a mild winter we had. So there's the kale in, you know, in a container covered in a tarpaulin. So it was obviously tucked into a corner somewhere outside of Polly's home in Mississauga and it survived. So normally it would be so cold above ground, the roots would have frozen, the plants would have died. Now kale is very frost hardy, much more frost hardy than many of our vegetables. Uh, but to have the whole plant above ground like that survive is a real testament to how mild the winter was so enjoy like you know it doesn't happen very often that um plants will survive when we don't expect them to and don't expect that to happen again <laughs> okay kale i must admit is not one of my favorite vegetables i i find it what well, kind of bitter to be honest well, with you yes but you notice what what um uh, Polly says there, she says, what's coming up is very tender and tasty. So it's the young leaves that are the good ones. If, if you've had bitter kale, it's because you're eating old kale. You got to grow your own and harvest it young. And then you'll say, ah, I've discovered why people love kale. 
There you go. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, we have to take a break right about now here in the show, but we'll return with more questions via your emails here on Zoomer Radio AM 740, 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, hello there. Good morning. On this Saturday, you're listening to The Garden Show with yours truly, Frank Proctor, and of course, Charlie Dobbin from her home in Prince Edward County. We're taping this show on Tuesday for broadcast today, and uh, these are emails that have been kindly sent in by you listeners. Here's one, uh, Charlie, from Suzanne McCoy, uh, Dahlia's. Uh, when I pull my dahlias out of storage, three had sprouts about 15 inches long. Now, it's been three weeks. They have turned green with a few leaves, but they're so long and spindly, I don't know what I should do with them. Maybe cut them off or just leave them. I did pot them up. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Sue McCoy in Brampton. Okay, so a good question. And you know, Sue, this does happen for sure to uh, people when we store our dahlias, you know, finding that right time to pull them out. Keeping them cool would keep them from growing uh, until you're ready to grow them. So if there's any way you can put them away next winter in a little cooler spot, you might find that you don't have those long spindly sprouts uh, so early because it sounds like... um, Sue pulled those dahlias out at the beginning of April, which is about the right time. Normally, we get them potted up around then. <clears throat> and they would they kind of look like potatoes at that point, right? They're just, it's a tuber <clears throat> that's got long white uh, growth on it. Uh, I would be inclined to have nipped it back right then and there. Um, Sue didn't. She's potted them up. Now there's long and spindly and green. Again, yes, I would cut them back. So go, go back to a node if they're, uh, 15 inches long, you want to bring them back to being more like three or four inches long and just cut them back, clean scissors, um, to a node. And a node is where there's a bump, a bump on the stem and leaf will, <clears throat> excuse me, sprout from there. Okay. Alrighty. Here's a, a note, uh, read, uh, list from Belinda Spilak says, thanks Charlie for taking the time last week to answer my email. Really appreciate your expert advice. I really like the idea of having boxwood in the garden to shape into globes or spiral bushes. However, based on your advice, I think I'll need to find alternatives. Any suggestions, Belinda? Yeah, Frank, remember this was um, a Belinda wrote us from Edmonton, Alberta. That, oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. She found the show on a podcast and now she's become a, a an avid listener. So thanks for that, Belinda. Nice to hear from you again. Um, key. She really if I remember to, correctly, she had about a, a foot of clay soil or soil and then it was yeah, mostly clay, right? Exactly. So she was looking for some trees to plant into her heavy clay. Remember, she's in a zone three area. So her area, zone three, is quite a bit cooler than where we garden in zone five. Uh, it's meaning she needs plants that are tougher or hardier. So we have more choices than she does is the bottom line. I was suggesting she stay away from boxwood. Um, boxwood has all kinds of issues attached to it these days, whether it's blights or bugs or, or just, you know, um, global warming, but boxwood, you pay a lot of money and it doesn't often fulfill the gorgeous look that we're, we want. So here's what I suggest. Super hardy in Edmonton should not be a problem. 
One is called inkberry. Inkberry is a form of ho- of holly. So holly, so ilex is holly, I-L-E-X. Glabra. Ilex glabra is inkberry. And that is considered one of the best boxwood substitution plants. Many of us love our boxwood. Uh, and most of us don't want to deal with the, the hassles that boxwood brings. So I would go with that. If you can't get a hold of inkberry for some reason uh, in your neighborhood, then just go with you, Y-E-W-U, uh, <clears throat> nice, hearty, evergreen plant, loves to be trimmed and, and sculpted, if that's what you want to do, is make yourself some topiaries of globes and spirals. You is very forgiving of that. And you, whatever you is available in Edmonton, whatever form of you is what you're going to probably want to purchase. If you want to grow upright, go with the Hicks U's and those you can turn into spirals. Otherwise, uh, go with... Um, something a more mounding you for the globes. There's different forms of use, and I'm sure your garden centers will have some options in them. So that's my best suggestion. Thanks, Belinda. Okay. Uh, got time for one more question here. This is from uh, Jan Umbler and uh, is regarding mulch. She says, I'm new to gardening, and I understand that there are many kinds of mulch, including rubber mulch, which one would you suggest for an etobicoke garden to keep the weeds down? Thank you, Jan. Right. So this is a very good question. We're, we're a little early in the season. We're not putting mulch down yet. But as soon as the soil warms up enough and we get plants really growing, so early June usually is the time to get the mulch onto the surface of the soil. Organic mulches are my favorite mulches. They're usually bark-based So it might be a mix of cedar and pine. It might be straight pine. I would never go with straight cedar, always. My my preferred mulches are mixed bark mulches. They are natural in color, though if you like a dyed mulch, they're out there. There's red, there's black. They even dye it brown, even though it's naturally brown. Um, Any of the mulches, the organic-based ones, will slowly decompose and add organic matter to your garden. So we like that. Uh, It's good in the long term, but of course needs to be replenished every year. The first year, you're going to put down two to four inches or five to ten centimeters thick layer on all your gardens. Don't let the mulch touch the plants, but ensure that it is over the surface of the soil that will keep down weeds, it'll keep in moisture. It's it's actually a wonderful thing to add to our gardens. Uh, and then next year, you don't need to put as much because next year, you're just going to top it up. The rubber mulch, I would stay away from. Rubber mulch is made from rubber tires, old rubber tires. Nobody knows what to do with them. They stick them in freezers, they freeze them solid, and then they bang them around in like a big dryer and they all crush into a thousand pieces because they're frozen solid. Then you can buy that crushed rubber and lay it on your gardens. Two reasons I wouldn't use it. One is it's not ultimately adding any anything to your soil in terms of um, quality of, you know, improving your soil with rubber mulch. And number two, if you're in a sunny location, the smell of rubber in the hot sun I find very disturbing. So I don't want to go out to my garden and smell hot tires, but it is out there and it's up to you if, if you want to use it. So thanks. Thanks a bunch, Jen. Thank you very much. And time for another break here. We'll be back in just moments. The Garden Show from Zoomer Radio. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin exclusively on Zoomer Radio. 
It's the Garden Show from Zoomer Radio. I'm Frank Proctor. This is Seth of the Garden. And, of course, from her home in Prince Edward County, here is Charlie Dobbin. Uh, we have uh, another question here, Charlie, this time from Marlene Grant, who says, uh, My husband and I both enjoy your Saturday morning show. We both have benefited from your expertise, so thank you for that. Last summer, I planted a yellow dahlia that did very well in my garden. I enjoyed it so much, I decided to try to winter it. Now, at present, it is in my cold room, wrapped in newspaper and peat moss. What should I be doing to get this ready for planting, and when can I get it into the ground? There you go from Marlene. So that's a great question, and that's kind of, people have dahlias on the mind, because we, we just had the question about dahlias and daylilies. So excellent idea to keep that dahlia over winter. You know, we pay a lot of money for these things, and if we loved them last summer, let's do what we can to keep them over winter and enjoy them again this summer. What I would do today, if you can, Marlene, is pull that dahlia out of your root cellar, get yourself a bucket of, of warm water, uh, unwrap the dahlia out of the peat moss and out of the newspaper, stick it in a bucket of water for about an hour, which will help hydrate it because you'll probably find it's, it's a bit uh, wrinkled right now. So hydrate it for about an hour, have a pot ready with some fresh potting soil or soilless mix, moisten that soilless mix, get it into the pot, and make sure when you put the dahlia in, you've got the stem, that main stem, sticking straight up. Make sure the roots are separated out. They're almost like a hand. You want the fingers to go down separately. So form the, the soil in the bottom of the pot in such a way that the dahlia root can sit on top of the soil. Then add more soil to bring your main stem right up basically at soil level, at the top of the soil level in the pot. Water once, of course. And then if you can give it warmth and light uh, in your windowsill, best case scenario, of course, we have a nice heating pad for some heat below. We've got nice bright lights and that dahlia will wake up very quickly and start growing. But either way, it's going to wake up and start growing. But do give it light, if nothing else, whether it's artificial light or it's in your windowsill. Uh, warmth is not necessary, but warmth will always speed up the growth of any of our, our plants at the beginning, right? Like seeds, when we're getting those germinating or dormant plants, we're trying to wake them up. You provide some bottom heat to those plants, you'll always speed up the physiological processes that will make things happen. And then you know everything is alive and everybody gets very excited and it's ton of fun. Okay. Uh, Charlie, as we were speaking, I am trying to visualize your property. You know, I, I, both Shirley and I have had the pleasure of being at your place, so I know what a wonderful new home you have. Uh, but the surrounding area, we got about two acres there that you're trying to work with. Yeah. What are you doing or what plans are you making for that? Oh, gosh, so busy with all kinds of plans. The um, I have brought a designer in, somebody who's designed big properties because I'm just not a two-acre designer. <laughs> so just, you know, sucking some ideas from her head. I uh, also have brought in a, a gentleman to do some hardscaping. So we are just kind of poised uh, to get some patio in, a front walkway in a fire pit, and I'm making lists of trees, and I'm going to start visiting some of my local wholesale nurseries to see what they've got go growing for uh, me to get some trees in, because the sooner I can get trees in, the happier I can be. I cannot tell you how windy it is where I live. Uh, oh, man, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wind, wind, wind. Well, poor Shirley, she put some pansies out of the end of her driveway, and they're now wilted, all due to the wind, thank you very much. Wow. Well, that's exactly what happened to me, too. I put some pansies in pots, 
put him at the front door. It was so cool. I thought, oh, those, you know, who's going to water a, a plant when it's so cool? I checked on them and they were bone dry from all the wind. And the temperature had been, you know, oh, five degrees. Yeah. So, yeah, we got to be really aware of how much wind can desiccate plants and, and really cause them to, to just decline so quickly. So keep an eye on anything you're planting. Speaking of wind, I'm almost winded myself. We're, we're coming to the <laughs> end of the show, Charlie. Uh, time to say bye-bye and uh, do the checkout counter. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you, Frank. Couldn't do any of this without your help. And, of course, couldn't do any of this without Joel's help. And couldn't do any of this without all of our different listeners sending in emails. So keep those emails coming. And thanks again, Joel. Thanks, Emmy. Thanks, Frank. See you again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.